Today's episode of 20th Century Popcast is brought to you by Butwells, the cookie to enjoy cheeks to cheek. And by an audio commentary, you can sync up to your own copy of the movie by hitting play on the movie and then immediately hitting pause and then listening to five sequential single tone beeps followed by a six higher tone beep on which you will unpause your movie syncing up the whole thing, all of which I am only telling you now because I will forget to in the actual episode. Hey everyone ever, and welcome to 20th Century Popcast, show where we try to understand the present while living in the past. My name is Tim Blevins, Bob Canning is not here, I'm in the midst of doing laundry on a cold morning, and this past week I got married, yeah, Sunday, my voice sounds like crap right now, I'm sorry, I've been fighting a cold, it's very chilly finally here in November. It's uh, November 1st as I record this for what will hopefully go up on November 2nd. But yeah, big weekend. Big series of dates, um, which accumulated in a very nice ceremony, which I will not go into detail or discuss here. Short of saying, I got to see Bob, this co-host, this bi-coastal, bi-co-host, uh, who I talk to every week via the Zencaster uh, web browser and some technology that is not yet outdated digitally. Uh, yeah, you know, we, we got to catch up, and it, it was pretty impressive. I hadn't seen Bob since 2006, or 2007, 2006, I think, or seven, one of those two. So that's 10 years. And uh, sorry to about the weddings. Weddings are always hard to catch up with people, talk to people, but the next day we were able to catch up for a few hours over drinks and talk, and, and Bob, I gotta say, it was, it was amazing to catch up with you. It, it, it was different, different than what we do on the show a bit, which is good too, but anyways, blah, 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 why am I talking into this device? Uh, oh, well, that's what I was gonna say is, because of the wedding, and despite the fact that I saw Bob, I guess I didn't <clears throat> seize the opportunity to record a live episode with him during the wedding ceremony. Sorry. But, uh, yeah, this week's been hectic and crazy, so we didn't get to record together. I will be back next week. But what what do you have this week? Because if you're listening to this, you obviously saw the title. You obviously, obviously saw the listing. And here's what I can tell you on all of that. L.A. Story is a movie. It's a Steve Martin movie from 1991. Um, it's a pretty impactive movie to me. It's my favorite movie. Well, that and Close Encounters of the Third Kind kind of vie, vie for the position. And Empire Strikes Back has its own position. But yeah, L.A. Story is a romantic comedy that I was fortunate enough to see at the exact right time of my pop cultural development, my emotional development, Scholastic development and creative development. Look, it's a movie that impacted me a lot. So today, what we're going to do, what I'm going to play for you in a little bit, is a recorded um, audio commentary for the film. About three weeks back, I did uh, what we do, a thing called Unsolicited Commentary, and it was a full-length audio commentary that you could sync up to the movie The Dark Crystal. Um, It's what we're going to eventually be offering on Patreon, but today, lucky you, you get to hear another one for free. It's 90-something minutes, so let's get to it. Um, Yeah, today, 
LA story, uh, audio commentary. Me, right now, washing pants. See, that's uh, the Car Loco logo. Car Loco, I think was the name of the company. Car Loco is a film company that produced or distributed this. I think TriStar distributed the movie. They produced it. They had another big hit this year that this came out in '91 of Terminator 2. After which, I think they folded because of the amount of money it cost to make Terminator 2. Welcome, welcome to unsolicited commentary. Uh, my name is Tim Blevins, and today I'm talking through L.A. Story. Um, as I just mentioned, it's a 1991 uh, comedy, romantic comedy. Actually, uh, Wikipedia refers to it as an American satirical romantic fantasy comedy drama film, uh, which that doesn't necessarily narrow it down. But uh, yes, we're talking this movie because uh, why are we talking it? Well, this is actually, I know a few times in the past i've probably mentioned favorite movies of mine and i guess there's three um empire strikes back which is kind of in a uh, category of its own so we won't talk about that but close encounters counters close encounters of the third kind the steven spielberg alien movie from 1977 has a huge impact on me and oftentimes i say that's my favorite movie but oftentimes i say this one is this comedy by Steve Martin, written by Steve Martin, starring Steve Martin, uh, directed by Mick Jackson, a British filmmaker. We'll talk about him in a little bit. This is my favorite movie, and, and I, you know, I, it came at the right time, I guess. I grew up, I was a huge fan of Steve Martin because of his comedy. I was a big fan of sort of uh, his stand-up. I had one album of his. I had his Let's Get Small album people know steve martin right people know he's a comedian i think so he hasn't done stand-up comedy since 1980 something but my uncle my uncle al when i was growing up he gave my brother and i a memorex cassette tape that he had taped the let's get small album onto sort of his his idea is sort of like here's comedy what do you think of this this is comedy so i must have been six or seven i mean i had a little walkman a little tape recorder walkman and i used to listen to that fucking let's get small tape on car trips all the time. I feel like we had to flip the tape, but then again, it seems like tapes are 45 minutes, probably the whole album on one side. I just remember riding in the backseat of a Mazda or riding in the backseat of an Aries or a Dodge Voyager, whatever car it was my parents were driving. And, uh, you know, during our trips, just in my head, doing the lip sync to this album. I really enjoyed Steve Martin's voice kind of his dumb jokes, his making fun of genres. He used to make fun of like Vegas comedians. He used to just make fun of structures of jokes, made fun of the stage, acknowledging stuff with spotlights and people in the audience. And that really played to me as a kid. And so encountering, here he is, those are Steve Martin's piercing eyes. Um, when, when it came time to follow Steve Martin, I guess, you know, I saw him in a few movies. I probably saw him in some Saturday Night Live reruns that my brother would watch, but I saw... A one-two punch in 1986 of uh, Three Amigos and Little Shop of Horrors, both kind of broad comedies that he was in, and both of which, I don't know, played to some of his strengths, played against his types a little bit, but I loved them. Then in 87, he wrote and starred in Roxanne, a modern-day romantic comedy retelling of Cyrano de Bergerac, and that, that kind of got me. That was a romantic film that was uh, sort of a 
what I would call a serious film. It's a comedy, but it was sort of like Steve Martin as a leading man, Steve Martin as a romantic actor, Steve Martin as sort of your romantic protagonist. And then I really, I liked that. There was something about that that was charming. He made jokes. He was an outsider. He was comfortable in his skin, you know, the whole story. And so, so I think I, I projected onto that. I liked Steve Martin on the basis of that. I already liked him. And then, uh, what, four years later, this movie comes along. L.A.'s Story, another romantic comedy. And I think it's a romantic comedy that I, I, I think I latch on to. I think I latch on to it for behavior. I think I latch on to it for its creativity, for how it's staged. There's a lot to this fucking movie, so we should probably talk about that instead of me talking about all these other movies he did. But a quick backstory. Yeah, I, I adored Steve Martin. He was a hero of mine. He, I, I think I, at that point of my life, 1991, I'd had a couple of idols. I think I had Steve Martin. I had the comedian Richard Lewis. And maybe I still had Dan Aykroyd. I feel like that was a holdover from Ghostbusters and maybe it was waning a little bit. But uh, I like comedians. I like neurotic comedians. And I think Steve Martin plays a neurotic character in this movie. But both Richard Lewis and Steve Martin, while stand-up comedians were people I was coming to because of the uh, romantic comedies they were performing. Richard Lewis was on a sitcom at the time, a romantic comedy sitcom, Anything But Love, which someday I'll talk about on the podcast. And that, but, but he and Steve Martin both were appealing to me and attractive characters to me because they told jokes. They were funny, but they were also charming. You know, and They're oftentimes up against odds. They were combating other people's for the affections of Jamie Lee Curtis, or as we see in this movie that we're supposed to be talking about, Victoria Tennant. But... I latched on to the intellectual funny man who was charming, you know, wasn't overly sexual, wasn't carrying themselves as, as you know, they were handsome. They're both handsome comedians, but they weren't carrying themselves as sexual. You don't look at Steve Martin, you don't look at Richard Lewis, you don't think sex. And I think that was achievable for me, very much achievable for me in high school. So I came to this movie, a romantic comedy, and I was expecting uh, Roxanne again. You know, the commercials made it seem funny, it seemed like there was a lot of clever dialogue it was going to be again at what was i 15 or 16 when this came out this was one of those things that i was latching onto in high school of sort of intellectual entertainment anything but love on tv uh when harry met sally annie hall you know these these pieces of adult entertainment that as a kid i was projecting myself into you know i just thought this is what it's going to be like to be an adult and so la story at least as it appeared on, uh, on the commercials that leading up to it, it looked like it was going to be another funny Steve Martin movie with quips about this place that I knew nothing about, this fantasy land Los Angeles, and it'd be romantic. So, uh, you know, I was excited for it. And I remember it came out, I think it came out, oh, I know it came out in February, February 8th, 1991. It was released, I think the same weekend as Sleeping with the Enemy, or maybe the weekend after. They were both being advertised at the same time. But I was thrilled for this movie to come out. So it was just some, I don't know, Friday night or Saturday night. My friends and I all piled into a car. We all drove down, you know, out of our hometown of Lebanon, you know, after a week of high school to the Jilson Cinemas in Willamette, Connecticut, the crappy, shitty Jilson Cinemas that were just magical haven to me because I got to see big screen movies. Pulled into the parking lot, each got our tickets, and we went in and we sat down for what was probably just going to be a ha-ha joke Steve Martin film. And as I've talked over seven minutes and now 28 seconds of it, um, but almost from the start, this movie hit me in a way where I detached 
I detached from the people I came with. I detached from the audience around me. I detached from the experience of I love Steve Martin. And I was immersed in an actual film. Because this film, and we'll discuss this, this, this film, which is kind of a little bit of his uh, his take on Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, I guess it's a little bit like The Tempest. There's actually a lot of Shakespeare mixed into this movie. He's an intellectual man who likes to make his Shakespeare references. But this is a comedy that works on a lot of levels from uh, intellectually smart down all the way to uh, just pratfall dumb and a lot of subtleties in the, the middle. There are laugh out loud jokes. There are, are subtle underplayed, you're going to miss it jokes. And there's jokes that aren't even funny. They're just bizarre. And I took it all in right there. And this, this movie, as we'll talk about, once I finally get into the mode of talking about it, this movie impacted me creatively, emotionally, uh, theatrically. I mean, I ripped this movie off from the get-go. I was a writer in high school, and I was writing plays. And after seeing this film, I worked it into my own take on a movie. I I, I wrote a a play called Love Among the Damned, which was set instead of Los Angeles. It was set in hell. Instead of a weatherman, it was basically me going to hell. And I, you know, falling in love with a roller skating woman, all this bizarre back and forth. It was just, it was a mimicry of this movie. What I thought was a sincere romance in the middle of a hilarious backdrop. And that's what this movie is. That's what my play was. And that's sort of how I set up my life. So let's, let's take a look at what we're talking about exactly, or what I'm talking about, or what I should be talking about. I think the first thing that I noticed in watching this movie is it was a representation of Los Angeles. And Los Angeles was, was foreign to me. I'd never been to it. Actually, it would be another... At that point, 10 years before I finally made it out to the West Coast. But, you know, it was this fantasy land to me. It's where movies were made. I knew it's where Hollywood was. But most of the TV shows I watched were set in New York or filmed on set. So you never, I didn't have a sense of the environment. So this movie is very much a movie that is there to represent Los Angeles. And to the uneducated eye, like myself, to someone who had never been there, creates and paints a bizarro picture that, there's probably a lot of in-jokes that I had to watch multiple times to get, and I probably forget that. Like right now, we're watching what Steve Martin was thought maybe was his darkest joke in the film. It's a comical take on freeway shootings. You know, they're casually driving to brunch. It's the first day of spring, which means it's open season on the LA Expressway. So suddenly all these cars are firing at each other. There's just, there's just some simple, almost Woody Allen sounding music in the background, and they're having a casual conversation amidst all this gunplay of which they're part of. And it's just, I mean, it's making light of the travesty, I suppose, but I didn't know about free, uh, freeway shootings growing up. So it was just this thing where it's like, that must be life when you're driving life on a highway. And so it's a couple showing up to just this restaurant, and this restaurant scene, early scene, probably the scene people remember. It's a constantly circling camera around um, this dinner party. Uh, Steve Martin's character of Harris is there with his girlfriend, played by Mary Lou Henner, whose name I'm forgetting. There's a lot of recognizable actors and actresses here. Iman is there. This guy who I can't remember who shows up in a lot of stuff. Kevin Pollock is there. Larry Miller is there. It's this idea of just adults and they meet up for dinner. And I guess as a kid, because I would hang out with my friends, you know, I'd hang out in basements and stuff, this kind of intellectual talk was what I wanted to do. I thought, you know, you go out for dinner, you all get together and you're just exchanging stories of the intellectual film, TV, whatever it is that you're involved with. And while that's what I was taking out of this, I think I was missing the fact that this is, this scene is playing on the vapidness, vapidity of that. 
there's definitely a presentation of the sh- of shallowness here, which is odd because as the movie continues, Steve Martin, I, I would say, loves Los Angeles, to, qu- to misquote Randy Newman. He loves Los Angeles and all the boulevards. He loves them. But there's Richard E. Grant. Oh, Richard E. Grant. I'm sorry, one of the actors in the scene, Richard E. Grant, uh, he's, he's kind of a hero. I think he's a hero to all of us. He's the most... British actor I think I've ever seen you must know him you know the same year that LA story came out he uh he would appear in Hudson Hawk brilliantly I might add in Hudson Hawk alongside Sandra Bernhard uh both of whom were kind of heroes of mine who I didn't quite know where heroes were yet but he's in this movie he's also he's one half and why I think it's cool that he's in this movie is he's one half of what is probably my favorite 80s independent film like small time film although I didn't actually see it till 2002 Richard E. Grant is in Whitnail and I. Um, he is the Whitnail of the title. And I don't know, that, that movie, it's about these two burnt out British actors, uh, one by, played by Richard E. Grant, the other played by the actor who, oh, whose name I am blanking on right now, Paul McGann. And they're living in this hovel, broke and drunk all the time and stoked out on drugs and just with no heat, just trying just to survive in this dead end suburb as actors. And it was kind of like a mimicry of my life for a while. And I just, I loved him in that movie so much, but this is the first thing I saw him in, but his face does resonate. Um, he doesn't have much to do in this movie, but he makes the romantic foil charming and he's charming. But what was I saying? What was I saying before? launching into that embrace of Richard E. Grant. God, there's so many recognizable faces around this fucking table. And Victoria Tennant, who I wouldn't have recognized, she's Steve Martin's, at the time was Steve Martin's wife. He wrote the part for a British performer, not necessarily hers, but she's in it. And and there's chemistry. It's kind of sweet. She's nice in this. They were both in All of Me together, um, probably about seven years before this. Uh, I think that's where they met. It's also all of me. I don't know if you've seen that movie. It's a Lily Tomlin, Steve Martin movie. And that's sort of Steve Martin claims that all of me and LA story kind of bookend his, uh, his serious acting career. He kind of feels like in that span is when he did all this serious work. I, that sort of cuts out leap of faith in grand Canyon, as well as the Spanish prisoner. God, how would he cut out the Spanish prisoner? It's the most serious role he ever had, but yeah, this span of time, I mean, after all of me, he did, well, I mean, he did Three Amigos and Little Shop of Horrors. But, uh, you know, I and those are what got me into his film career. But I see what he's saying, because after those two movies, there was Roxanne, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Parenthood, and, and then this. And even and by saying this was his last movie, he's forgetting Leap of Faith, he's forgetting Grand Canyon. And I think we, as a whole, forget that there was a time that Steve Martin was a charming actor, a leading man, a serious actor in a lot of ways. Pennies from Heaven is another example of this. We just don't get to see that as much. And it's a shame because he's very endearing. He's very endearing in this movie. This movie where I think, again, finally back to this topic, he's presenting a world where he his character, and then this Victoria Tennant character are kind of outsiders a bit in this. Well, I don't know if that's entirely true. Look, he's presenting a Los Angeles that I think does can seem shallow, can seem full of itself, can seem very entitled and, and you know all focused on appearances and how you're perceived. It's the cliche of the fast-paced, cocaine-fueled Hollywood lifestyle sort of thing. And Victoria Tennant's character... Uh, whose name I am blanking on right now. She's a uh, reporter from England here to write an article on Los Angeles. And she kind of comes in, comes into the setup, comes into the scenario as the outsider and is just viewing it 
the way an anthropologist might view it or the way someone might view like a, 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 a uh, you know, just some sort of wild animal special. She's an outsider trying to find her way in and all of this seems so bizarre to her. She can't quite connect. She doesn't know the language, even though they all speak English. She doesn't know the motions, even though they all walk on two feet. It's just such a bizarro setup. And you can see she's not fitting in. She's looking around uncomfortable and... Harris, Steve Martin's character, who's very much a part of Los Angeles. He's not an outsider. I was wrong to say that. He lives and thrives in this very same environment. He connects with her somehow. There's something about him in this setup, and we get it because he's the hero of the movie. We're supposed to like him, but he he's allowing himself maybe to express a little bit of his, a moment of tenderness. He can break out of sort of the, I don't know, I mean, that's the thing. This, this this movie is at once berating and embracing Los Angeles culture. It's a satire, which means it's making fun, pointing out holes, but it's also very much coming from a loving place. And so for Steve Martin's main character to be a part of that instead of Victoria Tennant's character, who is the outsider, I mean, we're following someone who is very much part of this environment. And, and it's an interesting choice, I guess. I think it's a way in. It's not your typical hero's journey. Normally, you, you, you have... The hero entering an extraordinary world and you're going along with them and you get your way into that because it's just as foreign to you as it is to them but in this we're kind of following someone as outsiders who's already inside of this but and as we'll see in a little bit the difference here is he's bored with this life he's bored with this familiarity there's a scene we'll see in a little bit where he's just writing in marker on his window bored beyond belief and i think that's where we're at in the story the movie opened with him uh, with a quote that i'm gonna misspeak now um something like i think uh, basically about um i don't know you know just basically i said you're thinking you're happy but not realizing you're miserable all the time the, the quotes at the beginning you should go back and look at it god i should have taken some notes but the point is it's someone who's doing all this flashy life he's part of this scene he fits in he knows the moves he knows the the language but he's just depressed but he doesn't know he's depressed until this outsider comes in. Oh, that's embarrassing. It's hilarious, but embarrassing. But until this outsider comes in and he has a moment of seeing that there are other aspects to life. And, and that part wasn't ringing with me yet as a kid watching this movie. But this idea of connecting with someone, this idea of connecting with someone outside of your circle, sure, that must have played a little bit. some sort of a clothing store, this this little montage, a little flashier than maybe it needs. But what this scene will do in a moment, we're going to get a little introduction to a pretty worthwhile character to be introduced to. Oh, there's Mary Lou Henner. Actually, those were Steve Martin's legs, but a moment ago, there's Mary Lou Henner. See, here it's weird because he doesn't quite fit in with this store. This, I guess, is a little contradicting. He doesn't like this fashion store. And he, here he seems like an outsider, like he's not used to it. So that's a little out of character, I think, with the rest of the movie. There's tits. There are tits in this movie. PG-13, by the way. And there's also her, Sarah Jessica Parker, another hero of mine in this movie. God, this movie's full of, of heroes from childhood. I mean, I was already adoring Sarah Jessica Parker before she took this role. And actually, I adored her for all the opposite character traits of this character. I knew her first and foremost from uh, Square Pegs. It was a brief impact of sitcom about high school that aired in 1982, seven years before I would 
actually even step foot in a high school. And I loved her in that role. She also played a kind of similar role in Girls Just Want to Have Fun, as well as a role in the movie that I really wanted to matter as a child called Flight of the Navigator. But she was, you know, I had always saw her. She looked a little bit like my cousin. She was this quirky but kind of outsider. She claims that this movie, being an L.A. story, or LA story this let her pick more daring roles in her career. It showed another side of her. You know, she was able to suddenly play a different character than the outsider nerd with the glasses. And I believe it, that her character we just saw as endearing. And in 1991, as a sophomore in high school, very much what I would have a crush on. So she's introduced a little bit there. There's a little bit of that ongoing male fantasy of Steve Martin wrote a script where this younger woman finds his older man attractive. And I don't know if that's realistic, but it's what people do. You see it on Californication. You see it on Seinfeld. You see it on Curb Your Enthusiasm. You see it with a lot of over 40 actors, comic comedians most of the time, it seems, setting up a storyline where the love interest has to be younger. Yes, he has a love interest of his own age in this movie as well, but that part, that connection probably plays into a little bit of a male fantasy that works in the movie or did when I was a kid because she was closer to my age and I related to that and if I was projecting myself on him of course I'd find that attractive but now as an adult it's it's a little Woody Allen creepy there's no legality issue to it but it's creepy okay so here we go with the magic of this movie a, a talking street sign if you've seen this movie before Ellie's story you know what I'm talking about if you haven't you're probably confused um, I didn't know these things exist, but apparently there's these very giant electrical street signs along the highways of Los Angeles that flash the freeway conditions and weather conditions as you drive by. If you live in Los Angeles, you'll know if there are or not. I, I know it from this movie. I didn't see them when I was out there. But this movie uses them as sort of the mystical uh, pan character or uh, is that the right character? Some Sort of like the, the, the interfering in the, the ways of mortals. The sign is communicating to Harris, Steve Martin's character, through different words on its screen. And he pretty much accepts it. There's a little bit aspect of sort of he thinks he's being filmed for like a candid camera show, but he's not so thrown by it. He's interacting with it. And I think that is important in how I view this movie. There's uh, some magical aspects are being introduced to the plot. There's some rules to how this world of Ellie's story works that are different from the world as we view it that that we live in magical aspects mystical fantasy magical realism whatever you want to call it and for that to work everybody kind of needs to buy into it so he's surprised that his car started but he's not surprised beyond belief he's still talking to the sign he's communicating with the sign and and we as as viewers i think we embrace this it doesn't seem that bizarre does it didn't to me i loved it and it's sort of set up a, a precedent for how I kind of wanted to live my life. I wanted to be at the center of a surreal whirlwind at all times. You know, I kind of wanted the life where things and people around me bounced off each other like this bizarre light-up pinball of effects and colors and all sorts of things. And I was in the middle of it, making my jokes, but also not being bothered by it, reacting to it, annoyed with it, but never thinking, this is bizarre, this is weird, and... There's a mystical sense to this movie that makes that seem very romantic. This movie also unfortunately fulfills that need that I had as a kid, that unfortunate need of how you want almost, or I almost always wanted a love triangle. I always wanted to vie for one person's affections, but someone else had to be in the way. 
In this scenario, it's kind of like Steve Martin's dating Mary Lou Henner. They have a relationship that is clearly not working. There's no signs of affection or romance there. And it's good. We root for him to find someone else because it's just not working. When in reality, shouldn't we just root for him to end it? Shouldn't he be able to just get out of it? What is the need of having this person who exists as nothing but an antagonist to make this other aspect of romance seem more romantic? That's beautiful. So this stuff really struck me. Right now we're seeing some visual, well, I'm seeing, you're hearing me say it unless you sync this up. Just like, ah, kitty. This is a beautiful time-lapse montage of the sun rising in Los Angeles. And then this has always dug deep into me. This is just a beautiful, there's some Enya-like music. I don't know if this is the actual Enya song, but there's Enya in the soundtrack. Playing in the background, there's that kitty again. Meows. But there's just this sense of I don't the is something I don't know, there's something about this is the world. And there are jokes going on in this that I'm missing. Jokes that are kind of playing off of movie montage aspects. He's about to in a second we'll see like she's do taking a slow motion shower, we cut back to him. He's gonna adjust his shower nozzle to slow-mo. And that kind of gives him a slow motion shower as well. And and, and these things are jokes, but the way it's filmed with all this light, it's so magical. It's it, Los Angeles was not a real place, not to me, but this mystical place that these characters are inhabiting, like an Enchanted Kingdom. That was fine. That was great. And it's this sequence of people waking up, and I think I wanted to rip this off for years. I never actually did. But just like starting the day. What a boring way for everyone to start the day. And she has this tuba out of the blue. I think I was just attracted to the concept of being an adult when I was a child. So seeing these scenes of what it's like for Steve Martin's character to live by himself on his own, I like that. And again, Steve Martin, I think I, I grafted myself on him a lot. Like I was saying at the beginning, I knew him first from his comedy albums, and I found his comedy albums really funny. I think I, to this day, rip off his vocal intonations and, and how he twists the sound of his voice and, and words when he talks. But a big part of his act, the big part of Steve Martin's comedy act when he was, uh, when these records were coming out was sort of, he was making fun of the medium he was in. He was doing kind of like a shuckster, kind of like a bad comedian performance with all these actual jokes thrown in there. There's some very incredibly smart jokes on his album, but he was doing it as this caricature, this performance, this big white suit, big drawn out voice, Vegas style uh, performance act. That was so goofy and so ridiculous that even if you weren't getting the jokes, and there were jokes in it, even if you weren't getting the references, that performance was enough to sort of just laugh at. So I think as a kid I even got, he was just doing this, or maybe I didn't get it. But his performance and what he did with his voice was, was, was I ripped it off because I liked that idea of getting a laugh even just in the shell of how you say something. You know, I saw The Jerk and I saw Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid and I would see movies of his, the goofier movies, and I thought he's funny. And again, like I said, Three Amigos, funny, Little Shop of Horrors, funny. These are goofy movies. But then once Roxanne came out, the movie before this that he wrote and that starred, and once that came out, I was already sold on the guy as a comedian. 
I thought comedians were the best, so I wanted to be like a comedian. To see this comedian also be able to be a leading man. Again, it's just like I was saying with, with Anything But Love, but also with Harry Met Sally. These funny people who are struggling romantics, you know, and I think that was appealing to me because I was a comedian. I was making jokes. I was lonely. I didn't know how it worked. I didn't know how relationships worked. So when I saw comedians struggling neurotically to get into a relationship, I, I realized, oh, we can do that. We can just make jokes about it. And so I think I I adopted that. Like, I don't even know if I was in love with anyone or really wanted a relationship, but I definitely knew how to talk like I did and how to talk about the troubles with women. And I learned it from these movies and these kind of comedians. So seeing Steve Martin go through what he's going through in this movie, yeah, that's what I wanted to be. He, um... Shortly after he wrote the movie, there's this great interview uh, with him. It's in the show notes for the, uh, for the episode on L.A. Story. It's an L.A. Times piece. And he talks about how the movie is more about romance than love. And I think that's an important distinction and definitely not one I made as a child. This is a romantic movie, but, but and once we get into it, we'll see more. No, there, there's no love in this movie. Nobody loves anyone. I mean, Steve Martin is convinced from the start of the story, and we're convinced that this Victoria Tennant character is the one for him. She's meant for him, but based on what they've they've interacted for all of four minutes, just how the structures work, it's romantic, and what we're going to see them go through is romantic, but there is actually no love. The, the love in this movie, by the way, the scene where he's hanging out with his friend, June is her name, maybe? I forget her name. Ariel? Ariel might be her name. His health food friend. That's probably the only love in this movie. They're actual friends. Isn't that weird? It was for me. I, it took me a long time to realize that love was separate from, from romance. I use that font all the time. So you want to talk about ridiculousness. The absurdity of Steve Martin. Well, that's, that's what we're watching right here. This is a sequence that is inspiring, even though I've never tried it and that I ripped off. Here he is at some fancy museum whose name I should know. They just told us to Los Angeles Museum of Art. Is that a real thing? And he's just roller skating through it while she films him to entertain himself. This is a key moment in the film that doesn't necessarily impact the film. Well, it does, actually. But this is the character's idea of what's funny. I'm roller skating without people noticing me through this ridiculous library, and she's filming it. And that seemed brilliant to me. I, I didn't have the balls to do something like this. I didn't act out with physicalness, but I enjoyed that idea of just moving through the absurd, no, moving absurdly through the hierarchy, through the self-importance of an art museum. And I talked about that play earlier that I wrote after this. There was a roller skating woman in it because of this. I don't roller skate. I also don't drive, so this scene means a lot to me. She can't park, I can't park. But yeah, there's something about that key moment, which again, I'm not entirely sure is in character for the character. <laughs> it's impactive, though. Let me pose, at least. There's a tone in how he said that line that I rip off all the time. I noticed that as I go back and watch a lot of the stuff like I've been doing for my childhood, and I've watched it throughout time anyways, but uh, the structure of their or people's voices, their tones, how they say certain things and key words. I repeat them, you know, quote them, work them into my own speech and almost forget. I have a lot of ripped off mannerisms from Richard Lewis, a lot of like pauses and hesitations that I probably scored from him, from Chandler on Friends, from here, from this movie. 
from Gary Shandling from early Ellen DeGeneres comedy. I, and it just kind of gets worked in as, as how you talk. And it's weird, almost embarrassing when you're watching a movie with someone. Like I've shown this movie to a lot of people because I love this movie. But the lines that I lifted from this serves me right, by the way, if I'm going to rip someone off. But it's more as a kid, but even now, lines that I ripped off or the tones of how I speak when I'm sitting there with someone watching it, I, you know, I get very anxious and antsy because I feel like they're going to see right through me. They're going to know I'm a phony because I ripped off my manner of speech from these people. Which, I don't know. Maybe that's how we learn how to talk. But this is what I'm saying. Like, this movie... I don't know if I'm conveying this enough. Here's another Shakespeare reference. This movie is lousy with them. And I don't think I got them as a kid, but I knew it was supposed to. But taking on this movie, taking on the Steve Martin character, taking on Richard Lewis. I mean, do I, does everybody do this? Is that how we find ourselves? Do people look at the fashions of David Bowie and think I'm going to be the outsider who dresses like David Bowie? Or do people see the, the sporting achievements of name of sports person here? Um, a Larry Bird or or a um, another basketball player that I can't think of, Michael Jordan or someone more relevant from today. Do people look at these people and do they take on their traits, their way of talking? People want to be just like Han Solo, so they act like them. Or are we relating to them? Like, what is that weird give and take? And I've I've talked about this a lot before. And if you listen to the podcast, maybe you're tired of hearing it. But I just I don't know the difference. I don't know the difference between being inspired by and being like-minded with a piece of art or entertainment or a performance. Like the bands I like, you know, how much I love The Replacements, love Lou Reed or love Ann Magnuson and love the music is what I'm loving because I don't know any of those people. But do I love it because the music's fun and I want to be like, oh, then I want to be like the person who makes that kind of music. So I take it on. Or is what that music's talking about resonate and hit something in my own life. So I gravitate to it. It can be a combination of both probably, but I don't know. Do we really want to see ourselves reflected in art? Like, do I want to see myself in this romantic comedy? Do I want to look at the Steve Martin character and say, that's me? Or do I want to be like this romantic comedy? So I project myself on the Steve Martin say, well, that's who I'm going to be. God, I've ripped that line off in some way or form. A very sweet exchange here where he almost, almost asks her out and then creates the reason why it doesn't work. I've done that. I've fucking done this. I've done this interaction. This was my college and a little after college. I mean, I had some more desperate things too, but this whole creating a moment that doesn't necessarily have to be love, but can be romantic, I guess. That's what I got from all these movies and, and comedians. You know, that was a really nice romantic day they had for themselves. I'll show you around town. And I've done that. I've done a version of that. I had my stock jokes of the different places around Boston that I'm pointing out. Or my stock jokes about the people I'm encountering at the coffee shop where I work or whatever it is. And I've done it with someone to seem endearing to that person up to the point where you can almost say, do you want to do this again? And you stop. And I don't know if that works in the real world. It's not honest in the real world. In the movie, we're watching it so we know what they're doing. But in the real world, the other person may not know that we're attracted to them. 
the little bit of what plot is in this movie, I guess. It's weird. This part I've always thought, oh, this is the plot. He's explaining it to you. He's bored with his job, so he's pre-recording the weather, and he's doing that so that he can misreport the weather, and therefore he'll get fired, which is, you know, how we get into Act 2, probably. If we haven't already, maybe we're already into Act 2. Also, some narration comes back in here again, I think, if I'm right. There's narration a little bit throughout the movie. He does voice. Yep, here it is. He does voiceover. And voiceover, it's, that's an odd tool. He, and it goes a bit of a spell without it. So that's what's weird. Annie Hall does it well because the character's doing it in person. So he can do it or not do it. It's fine. And I've ripped that off in the movie that I made. But this, the voiceover... <clears throat> I do wonder, is it in the script originally, or is this kind of like you do it after the fact to make sure things work? And I've read a version of this script, published versions. It had scenes that weren't in the movie, but at the same time, I don't know what draft it was. So, I don't know. Voiceover, I'm not, I'm usually not a big fan of it. I don't normally like voiceover. I didn't like The Wonder Years growing up. I had a hard time with that because of voiceover. And this movie, again, I love this movie, so I think it works. And I get it more now. I get it more now as an adult. When the voiceover is imbued or, or empowered, not empowered, but interjected with a little bit of distrust. When you can't trust the narrator, like Steve Martin narrating the story is invested in the story. So the things he's saying may not be honest. And I like that. I like that angle. I think as a kid, I thought narration was just like the Star Wars scroll. It's facts. But getting, you know, so maybe I should go back and watch the one years. I don't know. But getting that outside voice commenting on the inside, I mean, I was doing that as a kid in the moment out loud, and I thought that was fine I was because that's what a stand-up comedian does. Voiceover isn't stand-up comedy. Voiceover is narration. I'm not a big fan of narration, is what I'm saying, as I talk over the entire length of this 98-minute movie. We are 37 minutes and... 34 seconds in, if you're keeping track, if you're syncing this up, there it is. Bored beyond belief. No, not you, not me. That's what he's writing in marker on his window. Writing it backwards from the inside so you can read it on the outside. And I've done this too. It's so showy. So showy. And that's the worst joke in this. The phone rings and he says to his cat, expecting a call. Eh. That's a joke for another movie that's not bizarro like this movie. So this scenario, this is, that's a nice shot, by the way, following that cheeseburger to their table. Ugh, cheeseburgers. I ate a lot of cheeseburgers before I was a vegetarian. I still eat a lot of fries. I don't have them fed to me. I hate, you know what's weird is actually, this grosses me out. I hate watching people eat. Hate it. Ugh. You're appealing, Sarah Jessica Parker, as a character, but watching you eat a French fry, I could do without. I could really do without. Uh, and now she's feeding him. It's just, it's really gross. But um, what was I saying? Oh, dinner dates. Yeah. Why do people do that? Why why go out to dinner? I mean, I did. I, mostly it was for drinks. I used to go out for drinks a lot with people. And that, that was fine. That was great. I enjoyed it. But um, yeah, going out for food is just a mistake. That's a 90s looking guy. I think he's got a ponytail. He looks like he has a ponytail. It's got those really round 90s glasses, and ugh, I hope I didn't have that look. This is very male fantasy, this scene. Because 
I mean, and again, he wrote it. He wrote it. A male wrote it. And sometimes a male is going to write as well. So it's going to be male sounding. It's unavoidable. He's not going to shade that. But why is she interested in him, I guess, is my question. Sandy, the character of Sandy can see anyone she wants. What is what was attractive? We're led to believe it was his ass because she fit him for pants and stared at his ass and said, woo. So why are they out? This is kind of a hole now. Again, it wasn't when I was growing up because I didn't need to. And this is an example of what the movie's talking about. I didn't need a reason to think that something was romantic or that people were supposed to be together as a kid. I, you know, One, because I wasn't with anyone. So I was desperate for the idea of it without knowing if I wanted to do it. But, but more so, it just seemed like people just hook up, right? A guy and a girl, they're on screen. They're supposed to be together. He's funny. Don't women like things that are funny? And she's a girl. Don't men like girls? I mean, that's basically the mindset behind this scene. What is she giving him to like? She's a young woman showing him attention. And she's attractive. That's it. That's shallow. And being shallow is fine. But that's it. What does she see in him? I don't get. I never noticed that before, how they're walking. That's funny. Um, I love this scene. I love these kind of scenes where it's just such blase. People are being mugged at gunpoint in the scene, and they're so blase. They go up to the ATM in a line. There's a line of people with guns next to them. They get their money, and then they get them held up, and then they go on their way like it was just expected. It's funny. Also, this is the first time I think I ever saw an ATM. But it's weird. I mean, I wrote romantic comedies. The stuff I wrote in high school. Here's Paul Abdul. That was at the height of her fame. That's the start of her fame, maybe. I think Spellbound had just come out when this was there. So I knew who she was when she came on the screen. Uh, What was I saying? Oh, so I was writing romantic comedies because of this movie in high school. I was writing. I I had been writing like sci-fi comic book stories. And then seeing Annie Hall seeing when Harry met Sally, seeing Richard Lewis, and then seeing this changed my mind. And I was writing romantic comedies. And when you're 16 or 17 and you've never been in a relationship, when you're 16 and 17, you've never really loved someone because who does at 16 or 17? And when you're 16 and 17 and you're feeding yourself adult romances as like an education, you're going to write some shallow shit. Which I'm sure I did. I mean, I I think I was writing for the age I was at intellectually funny stuff that wasn't similar to the other 60 kids in my class. So it stuck out in that sense. But I pretended I had a grasp on relationships. I had pretended I had a grasp on love and dating and romance. And this this isn't unique to me. I think everyone thinks this in their teens. And that's what I'm saying is that the, the weird obnoxious angle of that when you're applying it to paper or going to the movies to live through this, is that you don't have to think about the other person. If in the movie I like half the couple, that's fine. They should get together because I like half the couple and they should be happy. If I'm writing a romantic comedy or a short story or whatever, and and the character that I'm sure is not even loosely but totally based on me is pining for someone, they can pine for them without any reason because that's the focus. And again, it's not movies and art's responsibility to teach me that there are two people in a relationship. It's not the movie's responsibility to teach me that the people I'm attracted to are human too or that being attracted to someone is more than just liking them in front of you. It's not their responsibility, but there is kind of like, does it lose something? Like, is this movie losing something on me now because of the one-wayness? 
of his affections like is this another male fantasy film that i have too much nostalgia for and is beautifully shot so i'm not gonna drift i mean i think it's it's very much that quote i was saying earlier from steve martin it's more about romance than love and again i did not think that i thought this was about love as a child I thought it was a love story but maybe this is just what I mean dating is. I think she's 21 is her character. We find out how old her character is later on in a pretty funny line. But yeah, I think she's 21 or something. And he's probably 40 something. So what, what do they have in common? I don't know. I don't know. So here's a little more uh, technology of the time speakerphone is was new. We didn't have speakerphone, just like we didn't have ATMs in my town. Like you didn't have gift baskets like that gift basket. I don't know why that's in the shot. We didn't have a fondue pot like that fondue. Oh, we did have a fondue pot, but he's got a lot of, is that a joke? There are tons of gift, I don't notice this. There's like four gift baskets in his apartment. <laughs> Seems funny. I don't know why. Also, is this his apartment or is this the TV studio? I used to rip this off too. This is, I'm actually, sorry, I'm talking through the, one of the best performances in this movie sort of the whole they're having a fight again this is male fantasy like he's the only victim here I think he's self-aware of it because he's getting caught in a lie his his girlfriend Mary Lou Henner is showing up to say she was with his agent the other night but she was at the same bar he was with Sandy the Sarah Jessica Parker character at so she's telling him he's acting all hurt it's been going on since the 80s it's a pretty funny line and there it is. Um, and so he's acting all hurt. He's acting all damaged while also protecting the fact that he was there. So it's, it's aware. Here comes some pretty amazing acting. He's sad. He's depressed as he steps down the steps. Now look at that. I, again, actually a shallow trait when you think about it, but a w- amazing performance. And again, uh, one of the reasons I love him, that's a, some goofiness that translates to personality there. Again, if you're not syncing this up to the movie, that didn't make any sense probably to you. But it's weird. The hero of this movie just allowed the other person to break up with him without taking any responsibility. He let her feel bad because she was admitting she was feeling bad. Didn't admit how he felt. And now he's excited to be out of the relationship. And you know what? Fuck me. I've done that. God, these things get in your head or they serve as the basis. You know what it was? I My, my parents were married happily. So they were the model of a relationship in my house. And I didn't want to be married when I was a kid. I am married now. It just happened, by the way. I am married. But, you know, so I wasn't looking to them. I wasn't looking to them because a married couple seemed different from whatever I was going to be. I just never had it in my head that I was going to be married. So I needed a basis of some kind. So I went to these movies. I went to these characters. Again, these charming, neurotic characters. Because I can be neurotic. I can be funny. And now to watch this, again, he has to be the hero. So if he treats Mary Lou Henner badly, which he kind of did, and it's not dealt with in the movie, we don't have to deal with it in watching him. God, it's a trick, right? Am I playing the trick on myself or is the movie playing the trick on me? I, I don't know. That's hard to tell. It's got to hurt this poor guy so he can get his head bonked right into that bell. Yep. Mm. So, are these commentaries worth it if you're not watching the movie? You tell me in an email uh, during a movie. I don't know what I'm saying there. Uh, 
This I probably subconsciously, the one thing I think I got from this movie that was healthy subconsciously is this. He has a healthy friendship with this lady here. There's no sexual tension. They spend their days hanging out together. They're, they're putting a video together of him having roller skates to the art museum. It's sweet and endearing. I had this friendship a lot. I think I clouded it too much with also being attracted to the person, but this is a healthy relationship, I feel like little conversation it fails the Beckdale test I haven't been looking but most of this movie probably does they had to be talking about dating so they failed the Beckdale test sorry Alice Beckdale it is Alice right Alice Beckdale are you answering the questions when I ask them because I'll be honest with you I can't hear the answers but I am asking them maybe you can do your commentary to uh to one of the cheaper by the dozens and during that answer my questions I'll listen to it I'll get my answers and we can sync them up for uh, Pink Panther 2, not the not the one with uh, out Steve Martin, but the one with Steve Martin. It's the first time I learned what a high colonic was, and I had to ask. It's an enema. Joke is he went to a high colonic institute, but I had no idea what that was till uh, I asked. And who did I, I must have asked one of my friends I was with, and they probably told me what a difference one year can make. And this is kind of like a sketch. This part, which I loved again, and I tried this in the things I was writing. It's one of the few moments in the movie where you can really see the beginning and ending of a sketch that he must have had outside of this. And it's funny. It's out of place with the movie, what we're going to see. He's going to go, he's trying to make a reservation. And they're really screening him over the phone. And he has to go down for this interview with uh, bank statements to meet the, uh, the, the head of the restaurant played by Patrick Stewart, as we'll see. And it's funny. And it was this sort of, it was very little Monty Python-like, a little... Uh, I think what comics maybe Harvey Picard did stuff like this in his comics a bit it was just it was like a heightened reality it's kind of a one joke that's still funny but it is a little out of pace with the movie but that's why I like this movie all these levels of humor going on at once and still having at the time what I thought was a pretty strong character through line but again now I just can't not see these male protagonists in romantic comedies as sort of manipulative jerks Where's your compassion for someone other than you, Mr. Martin's character? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's there or not. I, I, I can't tell. I can't fully tell. Still, though, it's funny. I think I wanted life to be like this. I think there was a while where I would almost invent exchanges and tension between people just so I could have my lines ready just so I could react like there's something about what he's reacting to isn't the bizarreness that we're seeing it's the real tension if this was a real moment like nobody goes through this to try to get a reservation it's funny but I don't know I think I tried to create these situations in life like I tr- like I definitely when I'm working working behind the counter at a coffee shop or, or, or a toy store I would try to create these surrealist moments of interaction just because it was fun it was entertaining and it gave me a way to talk a way to talk at times where I had nothing to say otherwise I could mistake it for interaction and that's take out humor and put romance in there that's I guess the danger that I found in latching on to these not knowing how to be in love not knowing how to open myself up to a person not knowing how to share and risk all things I have since learned but not knowing any of that that's a cute kitty uh, to begin with, 
These movies allowed me to create the scenarios where I had the lines to say, the things to say, the movements to do. Staged romance, which was a good portion of my dating life and a harmful portion of it. Because I, I did more not dating than dating. Um, here's another nice montage to get out of that hole of a conversation. I like these. The director, Mick Jackson. We haven't talked about him yet. Uh, Steve Martin was asked if he had wanted to direct this movie. And he said, definitely not. As a comedian, he's used to having to gauge things with an audience. And, and, and that audience is kind of like a director in a way. Someone else that he's bouncing the idea off. And Mick Jackson... Um, the director of this film. I never really made it my business to track down his other films growing up. Um, strangely, maybe I would have had IMDb been a thing when I first saw this. But, uh, I mean, he's probably best known as director of The Bodyguard, that uh, Whitney Houston, Kevin Costner movie that came out the year after this. He directed that. Um, I think I may have seen that. I did see a, the, the piece of his that I saw, and I didn't know this was him until IMDb, looking it up. He did, uh, I saw this on, it's a, it's a British miniseries, but I saw it, I think on PBS or something in the 80s, Threads. Have you ever heard of Threads? It's basically the British equivalent of the day after. It's about a nuclear war, and it follows this family, and it's incredibly depressing. It follows their story as the war builds up. It follows their story after the attack. It follows them as they die of radiation poisoning, as their babies go stillborn. It's an awfully dark, lengthy, depressing film. No wonder he directed this bright and cheery movie. But he does a lot of art interpretation. Like I don't know if he's a comedian. But he's definitely a visual artist, and, and, and maybe that's one of the reasons this movie works so well, is he is taking the jokes in the script and creating a visual around them that's not funny. It's beautiful. Very beautiful. I mean, even this, and this is one of my favorite jokes, and God, I've done this. They're all standing in the museum, and, and, and it's a big monologue. Steve Martin saying all oh, the stuff about what this painting must mean and going this huge, huge artistic critique of it. It's, it's a shot of them. And then when they reverse the shot, you see they're looking at just this big canvas of a red square. And again, there is art to that, but it's a comment on abstract art. But it's filmed well. It's beautifully filmed. And God, I did this all the time. You know, just be overly verbose. Don't let anyone else talk. And everything you say is a performance. The words you're using and the reason you're using them. It's a great character trait, actually. He's a great character for that because it is. it comes up later, too. It's a damaging practice. He's just trying to entertain the people he's with. God, I've done this. Here's the reveal. It's a red canvas. Ha, ha, ha. But it is funny. It's also, this is smart. It's also him flirting. He's flirting with her by showing off, which I think she calls about on later. And that's what I did. Flirting for me was never letting the other person say anything. Never letting the other person be part of the exchange. It was me entertaining them and me getting laughs from them. That was flirting, and that's faulty. But uh, yeah, Mick Jackson, he, uh, I hope you're watching this movie or have a chance to. He does a lot with light. He does a lot with the motion of things moving faster than they should. He does time-lapse with like the sunset and with like trees blowing. And what he's doing is creating the environment because these jokes are very pertinent to Los Angeles. This is a Los Angeles-based movie. Wouldn't make sense to transplant this movie to Boston and set it there. But So the jokes on paper are still about Los Angeles, but he's crafting the visual. It's a verbal script. There are side gags, but it's a, it's, the script could work on paper for the most part. The lines, the dialogue. But he really does create this fantasy world. Like even right now, how the camera's kind of spinning back and forth. And that's well-timed because you get this reaction. 
you really have to be watching this and understand what I'm saying, but he does create a magical sense for me of what Los Angeles was supposed to be. So of course I was disappointed when I finally visited it in 2001. But um, yeah, no, he's a great director. Again, I, I don't, I didn't follow him. I didn't go after other movies of his. He did Volcano, <laughs> the movie that wasn't Dante's Peak. Maybe he did Dante's Peak, the movie that wasn't Volcano. He did one of the Volcano movies in the late 90s. But this is an artful film. And I think it's easy to forget that. This is a beautiful, a lot of neon in this movie, which I love. It makes me think of Blade Runner. So there's some Blade Runner aspects. It's also a reference to a Ninja Turtle coming up, which blew my mind as a kid. I think they've got this database thing showing all the customers, and you see voice of Donatello. Loved it. There's a lot of cameos in this movie. Here comes Chevy Chase, who I guess is friends with Steve Martin. They're in Three Amigos together and stuff. But I just... He's someone who's fallen off the match. Like, this cameo would have been a big deal back then. Ooh, Chevy Chase. He was still handsome then. Still talented. I need to go back and rewatch some Chevy Chase movies to see how I feel. So this part's hard. Steve Martin wrote a rap, and he's got this waiter rapping, and they're laughing at it. That's what's weird about it. Well, she's laughing at it. I can't tell if they get it or not. I mean, this was funny to me. It's similar to I talked over it before. I'm sorry. The the famous espresso drink. Portions are small in Los Angeles, right? I do that. Oh my God, the way he blinked his eyes there slowly in a flirtatious manner. I fucking do that still. See, they're all supposed to get this, right? This, I don't know. Portions are small in Los Angeles. That's what I'll say. That's funny. So this... You know, again, I, uh, this is very romantic coming up. I, I, I'm getting a little chill remembering it. This was important to me. I thought it was very sweet. And again, I don't, I get her. She's quirky. She's an older version of the manic pixie girl. I think if you were to do this movie with someone in their 20s, everyone would be falling over her. That's awful. Gotcha. That was awful. You just made an age crack at this actress who's only 42. That's how old you are, dick. But no, if that was Zoe Duchanel or uh, Olivia Thurby, Thurby, however you pronounce it, or, or you know, one of some one of the modern day romantic comedy actresses that awkward boys can pine for without risking anything for. If she was one of them, she could have all the same lines, the same persona. Yeah, I guess I'm just judging her harsh because these are adults, and because as a kid I wasn't finding an adult attractive. That's the weird thing with this romance. I was projecting myself on Steve Martin, but I wasn't even thinking about who he was attracted to. I was probably pretending it was someone else entirely. This is actually one of the best scenes in the movie because she sees, as he's talking, we're seeing what she gets on him, that he's got something that he's always hiding. Because as he's making jokes to her, she sees in the window what he wrote earlier where it said, bored beyond belief in marker. And she's letting that kind of sit in. I think she feels bad for him a little bit. And then here comes a little mystical. Maybe not bad. Maybe she thinks he's a liar. But here's some mystical. The car starts rolling. They're going to follow it now. And we're headed to the, 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 the talking sign. A magical moment. And God, that's what I wanted as a kid. A fucking magical moment. Because when it's magical, <laughs> when it's romantically magical, you don't have to do anything. 
you don't have to put yourself out there. You don't have to involve yourself. The world works for you. And because it's magic, it's going to turn out right. That magic moment that you expect to happen at the prom or at the beach or under the bridge. Or as I spilled my water as I just did. God damn it. That's why we want magic. It takes a little bit of the responsibility of risk out. And romantic comedies are magical. So wanting a life like that means not risking all the other things. I wanted a fucking street sign to show up in Lebanon, Connecticut, so I could stand there as it gives me advice. The street sign, by the way. I, 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 if you didn't see the movie, I hope I'm making sense. This, this traffic sign that gives some advice. It's a key element here. It's a magical element. It's a bizarre one that doesn't really get explained. And originally, I guess in a very early draft of the film, the idea was that the signs were all being programmed by an alien. Um, an alien played by John Pertwee, who's one of the original doctors from Doctor Who. And I think there was this whole storyline of he had been tampering with them to try to get people together. Um, he was sick. The actor was sick. So thankfully, not thankful that he was sick, but thankfully they cut that out. Not that aliens are necessarily considered. I don't think everyone would think aliens tampering with signs is a more grounded rationale. But something just about the mysticalness of that talking sign is important. Let your mind go. And your body will follow. It was a pretty cool quote from this movie. I think it's done something for me. I think it's mattered. This has probably impacted me more than I realized. The impulsiveness of this relationship. I've never done it. I've never been romantically impulsive. But in terms of what a rom- I've had romantic moments. I guess those are impulsive. And that's what they just created there. With the music, the sound, and how it was filmed. This is really the movie slowing down to be romantic. Not slowing down, but just allowing itself to be just romantic. And that's important. And I, I like that. And I think when I saw this as a kid, by now I already knew it was more than just a comedy. But I think this scene probably was getting into my mind a little more. I'm sure I was very moved by that. Because I wasn't expecting it. I Again, I came to this movie thinking it was going to be all jokes. Smart jokes about L.A., making fun of L.A., making fun of car phones and people walking their dogs. But this is kind of an endearing moment. It's also like a real moment because he makes a joke here that's meant only as a joke, and he laughs at it, too, when he invites her to whatever he's inviting. I think he calls her a hog. That's sweet. I like this moment. I mean, they're they're good. I mean, they're good together. Steve Martin and Victoria Tennant. I guess they weren't good together because they divorced. But you know, in this movie, romantic comedy. I feel like I bet this lost my friends. The friends I saw this with they may not have cared as much for this movie. They were probably bored at this point. I love it. Here's a nice little piece of physical. Good catch, Mr. Martin. Um, I love it. No, it's a very sweet. Moment. I had the movie poster to LA's story, the original theatrical release poster, which was a picture of the sun <laughs> and the silhouette of someone standing on their hands along some post in Los Angeles, probably some famous landmark. I think I had the phrase, there's something funny happening in Los Angeles or something. Uh, I had a friend, my friend Michelle, worked at the Jilson Theaters. I think she was one of the people I saw this movie with, and so she could get me movie posters. Usually they were for things like uh, Loose Cannons with Dan Aykroyd or. Uh, 
that Dana Carvey opportunity knocks with Dana Carvey, but she was able to get me the LA story post and I still have it. Actually, it was up on my wall for years alongside an actual Steve Martin poster from his book, cruel shoes. But it was like one of the few actual, I had a bill and Ted's bogus journey one as well. The actual movie poster where the picture is printed on the front is printed backwards on the back. So if sun goes through it, it's a little thicker. I loved it. And again, it's not, you know, kids have their Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom poster up, or they have their picture of John Belushi from Animal House, or they have one of the Star Wars posters up. People don't normally have an L.A. story uh, picture pinned to their wall. I did. I did for a very long time. So it did mean something to me, having this movie hover over. That's, like I was saying at the beginning, it's, yeah, it's my favorite movie. That's weird, right? It's not a well-known one. There are bigger Steve Martin movies, but it... I think it hits all the chords I need. Stuff I'm talking about, even the stuff I'm berating right now is all stuff that I need in a movie. And it's just, I don't know, I think our favorite movies, they, one, they can change, just like songs. Your favorites can change over time. So maybe nostalgia makes me cling to this, but this was so, it sh- so shaped me. Fucking shaped me in 10th grade, going into 11th grade. I watched this so much growing up. Showed it to people, watched it by myself. Memorized it, read the script, had the poster. It's weird, they already have tension starting, which I guess is actually more realistic than not. I don't know, have you had that? I, I guess I've had that, where you you have a sudden night of romance, and you kiss, you make out, you whatever, and the next day it's not the same thing, or both people aren't on the same page, and you've had time to think about it. And they do an okay job of illustrating that here. It's just it also services the plot in that there needs to be a little tension so that when they do get together, it can be meaningful again. So it's weird. It's a little odd, but manipulated. But again, it's it's a, it's farcical, maybe. It's satire. It's a comedy. It's a movie. It doesn't follow real life. I'm just trying to sound all critical while still realizing that this did kind of ruin my life. This guy pumping gas. Is he in Back to the Future Part 2? Is he the guy who says, I think they took your wallet? Can you tell me this during your uh, audio commentary for the movie he did with Alec Baldwin and Diane Keaton, whose title I can't think of? It was an awful movie. It's complicated, might have been the name. Give the answer to my question on that, and I'll listen to that audio commentary. Is that joke funny the second time? Probably not. Sorry, I'm watching them argue in the car. I don't know what you're doing, but I think that's the, I think he took your wallet, sir. That's such a... He's like a bad, so funny at the same time. Like, this is just a dumb joke. This is a joke that could easily be put in a movie where it's kind of like, you know, one of those not another whatever movies. It's like, we go to the gas station suddenly. It's like you had a race car, racetrack or whatever, NASCAR. But uh, still funny. Still funny. But he's, well, I was just going to say, he's a recognizable actor from other stuff, background actor, goofy-looking guy. kind of feel bad for goofy-looking guys. You know, think like Kristen Schaal and her voice. They're always going to be cast for that, and they're very good at it. But can she branch out? Like, if Kristen Schaal wants to do a drama, will anyone let her? She might be a very good dramatic actress. We may never know because she keeps getting cast in amazing animation roles. She's great as a cartoon voice. I don't really follow her and other stuff. Why am I talking Kristen Schaal? She was like 15 when this came out. I'm assuming she's older than me. Maybe she was younger than me. If she was younger than me now, she probably was younger than me then. That's how that works. So it's a, it's, it's a double dose of romance here. 
we're going to see uh they're kind of doing the same thing again where it's like let your mind go and your body will follow we're not going to be together he's kind of forcing himself on her but then i don't know if they give her a moment to accept it ah self are movies still doing this probably the movies where it's sort of the male has every right to be forced like i, I would never want to be this forceful with someone I'm pretty sure they're having sex. I'm pretty sure it's consensual. It's so pretty though. Oh, some conflicting emotions as I watch this movie. I want to be in love with this movie because it taught me how to be in love with romance. That's the thing. John Hughes, you did this too. You did it too, John Hughes. You just gave us <clears throat> all the tools to be romantic. You gave us all the tricks and tools, outfits and whatever to be romantic but you didn't you didn't feel the need to tell us what are you going to tell us you didn't need you didn't let us see the other person react you didn't tell us that there's another person involved they're kind of like tools that you just use not things that you interact with so yeah that's beautiful look at all that neon again this is why i find blade runner so beautiful i haven't seen the second one yet but I do find that first one beautiful. And here comes an Enya song. This is probably why I love Enya so much. I used to listen. This is a song called On Your Shore. And I used to put it on repeat and go to bed to it. Do all these visual visualization tricks to kind of calm myself and go to bed to this song. I had the album after this first, Shepherd's Moon. This is off of Watermark. He uses three songs, two of which are off of Watermark of hers in this movie. So I was very excited when I found that. Yeah, this movie never released a soundtrack. There's the Enya songs. The Doo-Wah Diddy is on it later. There's a couple other songs. Not a whole lot of songs in the movie. There was a score, but they never released a soundtrack. So when I found the Enya CD, and again, had to track it down. Didn't, uh, didn't Couldn't sample it yet because I didn't have iTunes yet. That wasn't a thing yet. So I just remember tracking it down, bringing it home, and... I must have known the name of it because I probably saw it in the closing credits by then. But it was just, it was a thrill to find it and hear it. Music is always, oh, look at that. See, this is another thing. This is a magical moment that the director is putting together with time lapse grass growing, with these stone statues moving. I don't know if this is out of place. This meant the world to me. I have to say, I, I, again, I thought he was like that. What a translation of what romance must be. This is hilarious. Chainsaw Juggler and a scream off screen. But uh, no, it's I, again, it, it does fit. This movie is a good balance of bizarreness. And there's not another movie like it, so that's good. So he's shown up to let her off the hook. I've done this. You kind of just suddenly decide you've got someone else. It's honest. Here's the problem. <laughs> what he's doing is honest. That's not the problem, but he's coming to tell Sarah Jessica Parker Sandy that, you know, they had a plan to go on a trip, but he met someone else, so he can't just lead her on. But then it's going to become all about him in a minute because she's going to learn that the girl that he likes still has an obligation to see her ex. This is setting up that they'll be at the hotel at the same time, but when that comes up, suddenly he's the victim here, and he's all mad, and so she talks him into using her, basically. <laughs> Male fantasy. Maybe not. Maybe people really think this way. Maybe it's not just male fantasy, but I am having a little trouble with this, Steve Martin. Come on. 
Am I having trouble within the movie or having trouble that I used to relate to this? I just think it is just that trick and I think I can fall for it. I think there are times at 42 where if I'm working with someone who's half my age and they laugh at my joke, I think, oh, they think I'm the best one here. No, they're laughing at a joke. But they've got people their own age, their own age bracket, their own interest groups, Tim. You're not the star. And I think older male comics, when they write their movies, forget this. Or or they know it. So in the movie, they create this situation where women are just falling for them constantly. And that's phony. Again, wasn't phony back then because it's not how I was viewing the movie. I was, again, putting myself on him in a different way. But now as an adult... All I can think of with these movies are fucking Woody Allen. God damn it, Woody Allen. You fucking pervert abuser. And we'll be discussing one of my favorite movies, Stardust Memories, not Manhattan, next week. Oh, she's cute with that hat. So we got this joke. Kind of like they're each... T- so the plot right now is Steve Martin's character Harris and Sandy are driving to a resort at the same time the girl that Steve Martin has fallen for uh, played by his wife, Victoria Tennant, and her ex are going to the same resort, unknowing, without knowing it. Sarah, I think, is the other girl's name. Um, so we're cutting back and forth between their cars and hearing the different conversations. One's having their intellectual conversation about art. One is reading all the television and pop culture questions in Trivia Pursuit, kind of showing the differences there. Those are also the questions I always read in Trivia Pursuit. Beautiful aerial shots, though. Again, just this is a great movie for location. I think, I you know, I, I you know, like Woody Allen uh, has New York. Martin Scorsese has New York. John Hughes had Chicago. This movie has Los Angeles. Like, I want ownership of a locale. You know, I want the Inman Square of Cambridge as what I write and know, or the coffee shop there is what I write and know. I like that idea of the environment that you're a part of. And this movie does romanticize Los Angeles. Much better than Escape from Los Angeles. So yeah, this is kind of a comedy of errors portion of the movie. Fortunately, it doesn't last too long. The whole open doors, closed doors, like they're right next to each other. I hope they don't see each other kind of thing. It ends pretty quickly. It, it's done well, but we get into like the heart of the film. I mean, there's only, what, 20 minutes left in this movie? If you're listening along, we're one hour... 13 minutes and 52 seconds into the movie. If you're not, it might be because there's some weird streaming aspect or, or something. I don't know. But theoretically, that's where we're at. That's where we're at. A lot of, a lot of this music. A lot of good timing in this movie. Like that visual gag involves some timing. Maybe there was coaching off camera. I never really go on vacations. That looks so much fun, jumping on the big bed. I get it. I totally get it. But what do people do on these vacations? When you take someone you barely know to a resort, what do you do? I don't think I ever did it. I, you know, I would go to beach houses with people. Those did not always end well, or once did not end well. You know, I'm watching this right now, and I'm reminded that, and I wonder if this is part of the reason. I dated a girl who, and she probably hates that I'm saying this. I'm sorry. Cause she was great. She's actually awesome, but she looked a lot like Sarah Jessica Parker and sounded when she talked like Sarah Jessica Parker. And I wonder if somewhere in my mind there was this pop culture need 
to date Sarah Jessica Parker. And so that's why we hooked up. I mean, do these things, do these movies infiltrate that deeply? Like, are we all looking for the Susie Sue of Susie and the Banshees? Cause that's who we want to date, you know, or, or, or is someone who, who really enjoyed the drawings of Scott Pilgrim now only going to find the people who look like the drawings of Scott Pilgrim? I mean, does pop culture influence our choice in people? It must, right? If, if we're living the fantasy of pop culture, if I spent all these years pretending to be Steve Martin in this movie or pretending to be Richard Lewis, anything but love, how much easier is it to find the person who looks like the other performer in those scenes? Just teach them the right lines. God, these things really mess you up. Romantic comedies really fuck you up. Good luck being humane with a romantic comedy. Good fucking luck. Oh my god. You know how hard it is right now to keep talking? I really want to get up and get a glass of water, but I'm not. I'm sticking it out for you, the listener, who hopefully has gotten this far listening. I don't know. Think about it. I, it, it, it. Your favorite romantic films, if you have one. And maybe you don't. Maybe you're listening to this thinking, when is he going to stop talking about this? But if you're not, um, your favorite romantic films... Did you try to recreate those? I mean, did you mimic those? Is that how we learned to date? That's how I learned. Other people might learn it from people or books. Write it in books. But uh, I learned it from these films. And because I also wanted to be a writer, what I enjoyed writing was scripts, screenplays, and plays. Because that's what I was doing, then yeah, of course. These romantic comedies where it's banter, they were my thing. Because what I knew how to create, and when you write something, it's to get to point A to point B. When you plot out a romantic comedy, you got to hit all the right beats in the three-act structure so by the end they're together. Or if they're not together, it's for the reason they're not together, whatever it is. So of course I would mimic that in a relationship. A fucking course. Oh, man. It's nuts, right? I think it's nuts. So the movie picks up the drama again. This is a nice moment of them seeing each other. This is actually very nice drama. I, I think I get this more now than I used to, than I used to. That's hilariously frightening. Creepy. A little creepy. I would think. Did I fall asleep there for a second? I might have. That's where he's going to. I hope this is still synced up. Otherwise, when I repeat one of Richard E. Grant's lines, it's going to sound a little funky to you, probably. Possibly. See, it's supposed to be tense, I guess, but Richard E. Grant hasn't done anything bad. He doesn't do anything wrong, yet he is the obstacle that... Uh, well, he and his testicles are the obstacle that... Maybe that's why that joke is there. <laughs> you have to get through. So this beautiful night shot on the beach, I remember as a kid, so when this movie came out, seeing a little behind-the-scenes thing. I don't know where it was, Entertainment Tonight or its own thing, maybe on the movie channel, about the making of this. And it was it must have been after I'd seen the movie enough. So yeah, I don't know where it fucking was because I knew the scene. But this is all filmed during the day. 
it's it's a technique called day for night that's also my favorite Truffaut movie blah 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 name drop but um you know it's with filters and 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 stuff with the film stock to make it look like night but they film it during the day so they don't have to light it a certain way and i remember watching this get filmed for some reason this was the behind the scenes moment and they right before this they show the two of them running their lines steve martin and victoria Tennant running their lines with no emotion behind it just to make sure they have the lines they show the scenes being filmed that is it was such an insight for some reason i think again it must have been a year or two after this came out because since this was such a meaningful movie to me and because there aren't a lot of there wasn't a lot of access to repeat viewing behind the scenes stuff back then unless i taped it off tv which i'm sure i did some stuff maybe it was a steve martin biography episode but whatever it was it was was, there was something magical to that it was me the first time i really understood how films were put together that's not true i've seen other making of it's just it wasn't about special effects it wasn't about puppetry or visual effects it was just the effect of making it at night but it was just here's how we film one of the more serious scenes of the movie and i liked it i I liked having that little in I, i i used to yeah, I probably had a couple VHS tapes with just little segments here and there. Or like when it first aired on Showtime, there was a little deleted scene that they had put up. And I had all those little things just to see how it was made. I was fascinated with how things were made, even then. That's why I think creatively this came at the right time. I was writing a play shortly after this. I was getting into playwriting for the few years I was doing that. And so <clears throat> having this movie as the romantic template and the, and the, and the, and the you know sort of the humor template the basis of how i wrote but then seeing how it was put together seeing behind the scenes how actors work together how the director worked how they ran lines simple little things made the idea of getting the plays i wrote staged because they were they were staged by other people i got to direct one it made it seem more achievable this this movie was inspirational i haven't i haven't touched on that yet this movie inspired how i was telling stories starting at that point of my life I think if you look at the writing I was doing in high school and in the college, the plays and the screenplays, they all go back to this film. And shortly after this, I think Clerks and even later Chasing Amy, but this film, and its surrealist take on romance, made me think that that was a story I had to tell. And, and again, the stuff I wrote as a high school kid, it's high school writing. It was good. It wasn't great. It was good. And it was some, there's still something in there. When I look at it, I can still see there's the bit of me this the, the duality of me and, and there's stuff in it that i can relate to but there was also just the mimicry of this is how you tell a love story this is a romantic story people talking about romance people talking about love one person talking about love that was romance to me having the idea of love making the mixtape giving that speech writing the note and slipping it in the locker all the stuff you do to them was romance to me and that was the stories too i didn't write strong female characters i had very weak female characters i'm sorry to say when i was writing in high school and into college it took a while for me to understand more characters than a central character who looked and talked like i did or wanted to i think all the stories i wrote had wacky crazy caricatures with funny lines and scenarios circling around the one grounded funny character that i thought was me and and that's that's not healthy you know it's weird right now they're having this big fight there's only 10 minutes left in this movie this is romantically gonna get wrapped up in 10 minutes that's crazy 
That's crazy pacing. But what was I saying? I, I guess the inspiration of this movie to pursue romance is important. The inspiration of this movie to interact and perform is important. But I think it wasn't until much later in life that the idea of two people and a couple hit me. And it's so obvious that the way I'm thinking is serious. It's so apparent. And that's how this movie acts. She called him out. I talked through it, but she calls him out for lying to him, her. She calls him out for acting like a child. She calls him out for doing all these dishonest things. And it's true. What she says is true, but I don't know if he ever actually apologizes. I don't know if it ever really comes back. Because he, as we're going to see, I don't mean to ruin it for you, but I'm assuming you've seen the movie if you've gotten to this point. They wind up together. They, 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 they get each other at the end. And there's an interesting line that we'll talk about when we get to that point. I'm sorry. That line right there, why do we not always recognize the moment where love begins? But we always know when it ends. I remember a kid in my school, Ryan Barboza, writing that on his... Uh, used to have to cover your books with paper bags, book covers to protect them. And I remember he had that written there. And I was like, how do you know that? How do you know that line? That's my movie. How could someone else know that movie? Apparently people like this movie, but that line may have meaning, but it's not what's going on in this movie. Because again, she's leaving. She's leaving angry because she feels used by him, and, and, and she was. He got mad at her and created an argument where there wasn't one to justify, I'm not sure what. That's kind of the end. You know, because they didn't have much else to base it on. But because this is a romantic comedy, and it's powerful, it's got the Enya music going, and you're going to see the weather works to strand her, and she comes back to him. He doesn't really have to pursue her. It's a weird romance. He talks about not knowing when love begins, but knowing when it ends. I, I don't know if it ever began. They flirted. They had some romantic interactions but there's no love there that's why when we get to the end there is a line that i think depending on how you take it agrees with that and i'm curious to how it plays this time because because right now we're seeing that he's a weatherman i don't know if i've mentioned that but it's in the context of the movie he's a weatherman uh the sign at one point told him the weather would change his life twice the first time was when he recorded that false weather report that turned out to be wrong and he got fired because of it this time she's on a flight already to go back home and now the storm is rolling in that's going to strand her it's making it impossible for the planes to leave the airport it's driving the sign crazy it's turning this weird weather device on his desk it's spinning around this barometer thing it's 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 a pretty magical mystical moment i like it but it's like what's doing this and he even asks that in a bit. But it's like, is this warranted? This is romance. This is so romantic. It's big sweeping gestures. It's a romantic comedy. That's not love, Tim. But I thought it was. The world sabotaged her plan so she could go running back to him is kind of what happens. It's in the context of a romantic comedy, and that's good. They're both thinking about each other as the storm hits. They're both going to touch the windows of the plane in his house at the same time with the same flash of lightning. That's endearing. I had that moment as a, in college. 
first experience with the internet when I was touching the screen. I wrote, are you touching the screen? And this girl was, and we pretended to feel it. We pretended we were feeling something because you're manipulating feelings. Here he is walking out of his house in the rain. She's going to pull up in a taxi cab from the airport. She came back to his place. It'd be very funny if she said, I just got to wait till the next flight. But we're meant to believe that the universe just brought them back together through the nature, through weather. And it's just kind of like, I don't, it's great in a movie. Don't get me wrong. It's great as a romantic comedy, but it's not a good takeaway lesson. The idea is that he deserves her is kind of what's happening there. Things work to bring her back. But here's the line. No, I'm sorry. The line's at the end. Never mind. <laughs> We're not at the end yet. You must be exhausted listening to this. We're an hour and... Tr- oh, damn it. I did talk through the line. So the line, the line that I was going to say, he just said in voiceover, a kiss may not be the truth, but it is what we wish were true. That's a realistic, pessimistic, neurotic, beautiful statement in this romantic comedy. It's odd that that is what he says as they're kissing, because that's the narrative. Now, this maybe will change my opinion on his voiceover. Maybe I do like it, because in the context of the movie, it's still going. The two of them are talking to the sign and learning that the sign wanted them to get together. But that line is basically telling you the fantasy a kiss is the fantasy. Doesn't the moment feel right? Doesn't that romantic moment feel great? A kiss may not be what is true, but it is what we wish was true. All right. That's fine. That's great. That's the behavior you learn to change. So having that come at the end of the movie is a little weird. <laughs> he hasn't changed. He hasn't learned anything different. He got his romance. I feel like the next day, when he back in the house, if we saw them together, he'd probably be trying to get her another flight back out. It's like, I got your ticket. I got your ticket for you because he's a man-child. He's an overly dramatic, joke-telling, romantic man-child who hasn't give, been given any reason to act differently. She called him on that. She said, you're always just trying to entertain people. And... Just right there, he's asking the sign, did you do this? Did I do this? He's not including her at all. It's it's him or magic. Him or the sign. And so I don't know. That kiss line is important. Kiss may not be the truth, but it is what we wish was true. That sums up romance. That sums up these movies. That sums up our perception of these movies. That was probably an important line to sit in my head that I'm only realizing now. Thank God this is the romantic comedy that means the most to me because it gives you that window. It keeps going. And I think we are left, we leave the theater thinking, yeah, they're together. I can do this is probably the feeling. I can get someone to love me and whatever. But that little moment, wow. That line is fucking important. And maybe that's why this resonates to me, because I missed all of his performance, his drama, his comedy, and the many levels of, of comedy, and then all the angles and aspects. At the heart of it, there's the acknowledgement that this is all for show. And that is what a lot of romance is, right? It's for show. 
so weird because yeah this was just this was just Roman you know it's weird they're using my favorite font in their credits American typewriter um do you have a favorite font listener no I I now I'm confused <laughs> I was all you know I I was prepping myself I knew that line was coming but I can't connect that line there's a Steve Martin a pessimistic Steve Martin who knows this movie is a lie not a lie but he knows it's for show he knows it's romantic but not love so the fact that he had that line too you know um that i was talking about earlier that quote from the article um more about romance and love i how great how great is that i'm glad this was my guidepost yes it's still using people but that chance to embrace romance, the drama of romance, the big sweeping score of romance and, and, and the obstacles and the, and the big speech. We should have that at one point. We should get that in, our, in and out of our system. That's because that, that's, that's a trigger to understand the effort. Because love's going to be effort too down the road for me after this movie all the way here in 2017 when I just got married. That love is an effort, and at least this romance, these exaggerated romantic comedies, prep the body and prep the mind for the effort they're going to have to take. And I mean, I, I didn't think of this coming into this. This wasn't what I was thinking the, 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 uh, the, the takeaway from this movie would be. But what a good primer. What a good primer on the lessons of effort. L.A. Story, thank you. <laughs> thank you for, for teaching me how to love again. No, I, I think thank you for readying my mind with that single line that romance, kisses, all these things are not real. But they're the only way we're going to experience what is. Wow. It only took me... 24 years to get that well-timed LA story and my wedding um what did I get to talk about a lot I don't know was that informative or was that hard that one may have been hard to get through dark crystal I, I think that one worked this one yeah you, you had to sit through me rambling a bit it's a less known movie I would say seek this one out I don't know where it is I know you can get it real cheap on DVD I think you can rent it YouTube or or, or uh Maybe you already did, by the way. I think you rented on, on Amazon. Maybe you synced this up. But if not, it's worth watching. It's a fun movie. It's very much early 90s in fashion, but it's pretty timeless otherwise. I think there's probably a couple jokes that maybe don't transcend in the 21st century. But it's a good movie. L.A. Story. It's my favorite movie. That's not about UFOs because they took the alien out. That one would be Close Encounters. And there's no James Earl Jones. That would be Empire Strikes Back. So L.A. Story. The film was only an hour and 30, what, five minutes, but boy, I am exhausted. I love it. Not in a love way, but at least in a romantic way. Oh, yeah, I lost it at the end there. I really lost it. Tristar! So that was a lot to listen to, right? I mean, how many of you actually even own that movie? If you don't, it's worth it's worth checking out. It's actually pretty cheap on DVDs. 
VHS. It might be on demand somewhere. I'll do some research. But if nothing else, you heard me talk about my total admiration and whatever for uh, for what is sort of my most impactive movie of my life, I think, adult life anyways. And speaking of anyways, let me segue just quickly into closings because this has been a long episode. Uh, 20th Century Popcast. It's a weekly podcast. You can check us out at www.20popcast.com. There you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, other Android devices. You can uh, listen to uh, all past episodes, see some articles and things coming up, news about upcoming episodes. If you do listen to the show um, and, and you like it, or if you do listen to the show and you don't like it, if you write us a review on iTunes or drop us a note on the pop top pop talk section of the website that would be great just because we're trying to gauge the audience trying to see what you like what you don't like how it works out Um, as always you can follow me on Twitter at subcultist keep on top of what I'm up to you I'm a wonderful co-host who will be back next week uh, Bob Canning you can follow him at RH Canning there's so much more, but that's all I'm going to say. Uh, we'll be back next week, the two of us, back to the normal pitter-patter of the show. God, what am I saying? Uh, thank you very much for listening. And Bob, thank you very much for traveling all the way across country uh, last week just to witness me getting married and also just to reconnect with me in person. Uh, it meant a lot, man. And I don't know why I'm trying to convey it here on the podcast other than get the attention of the listeners to go, aww. But uh, it was awesome to see you, sir. Um, and I miss I miss our sitcom life. Uh, oh, that's, that's a good catchphrase. But here's the other one. Uh, catchphrase.